0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. My guest today is Mira Desi, the ingredient guru. Mira is a holistic nutrition professional, author, and popular public speaker. And she knows that it's not just what you eat, but what's in what you eat that matters. Her work focuses on helping people find bio individual solutions for chronic health issues and creating pantry preparedness through her online community, The Kitchen Table. Mira is a member of the National Association of Nutrition Professionals, the Society for Nutrition Education and Behavior, the American Nutrition Association, and the American Association of Drugless Practitioners. Additionally, she is on the board of directors for the American Holistic Health Association and is a member of the professional advisory board for the Turner Syndrome Society. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about allulose. This is a hot new sweetener on the market that's being used in numerous keto and low sugar products, and Mira is going to uncover the truth behind this ingredient and the detrimental effects it can have on our health and our metabolism, and help us figure out what we can use instead. So without further ado, I hope you'll enjoy my interview with Mira Desi. Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to uplevel their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to uplevel your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro-science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. So hello, Mira. Welcome, and thank you so much for
1: joining me. Thanks for having me on. This is exciting. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Me
0: too. I got some juicy stuff to cover today. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing this work, and then we'll dive in from there. Sure. Well, I am known
1: as the ingredient guru, but that was certainly not always the case. A long time ago, I actually used to be a database administrator for an international research firm. And as I began to have some health issues, I really began to spiral downward. I was having a A lot of problems with my gut, with energy, fatigue, weakness, dizziness, all kinds of things. I was so sick, I literally could not even walk up a flight of stairs without lying on the top landing. Even if I was going to bed, I had to lie down and sort of recover and then crawl to bed. And I had three kids and a husband and a house and I would have to choose between was I going to do laundry or was I going to make dinner that day because that was literally all the energy I had. And to make a long story a little bit shorter, I wound up being diagnosed with a number of different autoimmune diseases and ulcerative colitis turned out to be my primary disorder. I saw a lot of different doctors for all of the different symptoms I was having and now it's funny but at the time it wasn't. It was sort of this wry statement that if there was an I had it gastroenterologist and, you know, (laughs) cardiologist, (laughs) rheumatologist, endocrinologist, like I had them all. And. I had some very caring doctors, but unfortunately, all they wanted to do was give me more and more medication. I wasn't getting better. My turning point was one week where I saw two doctors in the same week. One was my rheumatologist who said, there's a medication I want to give you, but I don't think your endocrinologist is going to like it. So we're not going to do that. And I'm a very conflict-averse person. So I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then as I was driving home, I started getting mad because I'm like, well, wait a minute. Aren't you both doctors? Don't you people talk to each other? Right. And the answer is no, they don't. And, and then the other issue was, if you're not going to do anything, why are you going to tell me? Like, what does that do for me? Yeah. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, I went to a new to me cardiologist And he, I thought he was going to want to hear my story. I'm like, yay, finally, somebody who's going to want to hear the whole thing. From the beginning, new doctor to my care team. And I came in ready to share everything. I started talking and he went, "Uh, uh, Mrs. Desi, you are getting older. I was 42. (laughs) And this man was willing to consign me to a sofa for the rest of my life. And I got pissed. Like that's what it finally took for me to get angry. And I went home and I called the insurance company And sadly, I just unloaded on the woman who happened to be on the other end of the phone. Like, I feel so bad about that to this day. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I was so frustrated and so overwhelmed. And she said, we can send you for an executive checkup, which is something that only a few hospitals in the country do. You get a gateway doctor. You get a medical concierge person who takes you Mm -hmm. around every single day. You see different doctors, different appointments, and every single doctor agrees to stay on your team until the end of your visit. So I was there, I think, four days. And I had, you know, three or four appointments a day. Like I really went through the ringer. And at the end of that, they sent me home with information for my doctors at home. They changed my care plan a little bit. But the most important thing they did for me was they made me realize that if I wanted doctors to talk to each other, I had to make sure it happened. Mm
0: -hmm, And if I
1: wanted certain things to move forward, like I had to be the biggest advocate for my own healthcare. And I grew up in a family system that was like, doctors are up here. Like you never tell a doctor anything. Like you just go with whatever they say. And so that was really eye opening for me. And then a friend of mine gave me a book about artificial color that hmm. rocked my world because none of those doctors talked to me about my food. Right. And I went, yeah. what? And, and I should say at that point... You know, my friends would make fun of me. They go, oh, you're one of the healthiest eaters I know. And we, you know, we would go to the farmer's market and the CSA and I made jams and jellies and I baked all of our bread and we did all the things and we still had crappy food in our house. Yeah. And, and so I started going through my pantry. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, look at all this stuff.
0: And And when you say artificial color, you mean like the FD&C red and the additives, correct? Yes.
1: Added petrochemically based colors. Okay. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at the ingredient panel for the first time in my life, 40 plus years old, looking at the ingredient panel for the first time in my life going, what the heck is BHT? Yeah. And why is it in the food? And what does it do to you? And I, at a certain point, turned to my husband. I said... I've taught myself everything I know on my own. I think I have to go back to school. And I did. I went to school. I became a nutrition educator. And then from there began to teach cooking classes and help people go through their pantries and everything else. And at a certain point, just became that person who has a nerdly <laughs> fascination with all the stupid stuff they do to our food. And I'm here to tell people why, you know, it's great for the manufacturers because it helps them make food that is shelf stable, or that is consistent in appearance or whatever. But it's not good for us. And people like me, and there are a ton of us, and a lot of your listeners are going to be the same way who have health issues, because their guts messed up, or they have Mm -hmm. fatigue or headaches or brain fog, or all these other things that can happen from additives. We're the chemical canaries. This is in the food and it's hurting us. Yeah, but we're ignored. And yeah. I'm, I'm here to just empower people and go, you are not wrong. You are not making this up. And anybody who tells you, oh, it's nothing, they're the ones yeah. who are wrong. It's
0: just aging.
1: Yeah, right. Or the other one that really upsets me, because I certainly had people say this to me, and I've had clients over the years who their doctors would say the same thing to them. They, well, your tests look normal maybe yeah, you should was like talk small. to someone. And they go, maybe you should talk to someone. They make you sound like you need a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Because you must be I've making this myself it. for sure. Yeah, yeah more than that's, once. That's just awful. So, I eventually got to a point where I was afraid of it. In the beginning I will confess I didn't want to claim that the ingredient guru label but at this point you know I subscribe to over 50 industry newsletters I <laughs> I tell people all the time about what's in their food I share all this stuff and I realized I really am because there's not that many people out there that are are diving
0: this deep into what's in what we eat right and I really appreciate that you do that because it's such a Huge swath of information. Yeah. And even doing something similar mm-hmm. with my nutrition coaching, you know, I only have so much bandwidth to get into individual ingredients. And so I don't have the depth of knowledge about this that you do. So I'm really excited to talk more about these things, especially a couple of really hot ingredients right now that we're seeing everywhere. Yeah. And I do work with so many people and have had so many clients come to me with either no diagnosis with the same yeah. kind of explanations that we were just talking about or they get diagnosed with IBS. Mm-hmm. And I always say, well, what's irritating your bowel? Why is your bowel irritated? It didn't just get irritated for no reason. Right. This is not a standalone disease or condition. Something is upstream that's causing this downstream symptom. This is a constellation of symptoms that they're supposedly diagnosing, but there's no clear path to treating that other than random pharmaceuticals, drugs, whatever we can that are masking those symptoms. And if we can get to the root of whatever that upstream cause is and start addressing that, then maybe we can actually experience healing and improvement and a better quality of life, right? And better health in general. So that's always where I'm trying to gear people and encourage them, like you said, to be their own advocate. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't do that, it's not that doctors don't want to be an advocate or don't want to help you, but their bandwidth is so limited. And like you said, nutrition is not something, I can't tell you how many doctors I know that have said I didn't learn almost any nutrition in medical school.
1: Yeah, I I will share. So there's two things that I'd like to share. One is that the average doctor receives, I believe, 24 hours of training around nutrition out of all the years of there in medical school. 24 hours. I spent 13 months. You know, and I and I'm not a doctor. I never claim to be a doctor. I don't treat. I don't diagnose. I don't prescribe. Right. I don't do any of that. Same here. But I know a lot about food. And you certainly, when you're working with clients, you can help them go much deeper into the bioindividual needs of their body because that's what you're focusing on. Yes. Yes, that's all we're focusing on. Exactly. And then the other thing that I like to share with people is my last colonoscopy, because with a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis, you get a lot of colonoscopies. Um, My last colonoscopy, I was told that there was no more signs of ulcerative colitis in my body. Wow. And that's That's a lot of years coming. And I admittedly, there are some people who have it much more severely than I did. There are some people who wind up having to have surgery and all kinds of things, but you know, mine was, was pretty bad when I was going through it. And by changing my diet and getting rid of the not food ingredients in my food, my body was able to be, to be able to restore and repair those tissues. So it doesn't show up anymore.
0: And for those listeners, Mira, who don't know what ulcerative colitis is, will you give us a brief description of of what that is exactly?
1: Sure. So it's like having ulcers lower down in your digestive tract. Most people, when they think of ulcers, they tend to think of the stomach or perhaps the esophagus. So this is the other side of the digestive (laughs) tract. And these ulcerations, because of where they are in the system, can cause, first of all, a lot of pain. They tend to impact bowel health. You, mm-hmm. Most people with ulcerative colitis tend to have very challenging issues with bowel urgency. You have to know where a toilet is within 10 steps of you at just about any yeah, moment. So and- awful. Yeah. And frequently you're having, you know, these very loose diarrhea mucosal rich stools that, and the other thing that happens with that, depending on which section of your colon is damaged, because it can happen in different areas, you may not be fully absorbing nutrients because that section is so impaired, your body can't even utilize what you're putting into it. And that then can contribute to fatigue and further deterioration. So it really is a challenge when we're, you know, you could have the most perfect diet in the world, but if you're not absorbing it, it's not going to help you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're not what we eat or what we can absorb, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, our hot topic today, as we shift into these sort of Franken ingredients, so to speak, is allulose. And mm-hmm. I heard you speaking on Andrea Nakayama's podcast, The 15 Minute Matrix, a couple of years back about allulose before it was a really common thing. And I'd love for you to share your experience with it when you first ingested it unknowingly, but I'll tell you mine too, which you and I talked about briefly previous to recording today. I was enjoying those little smart sweets, gummies. I love gummies. like That is my candy go-to if I'm going to have something. I love a Swedish fish. I love gummy bears. And I obviously don't eat those kinds of things almost ever anymore. And Mm -hmm. if I do, it's very rare. But I found these and at the time they were stevia sweetened. Mm-hmm. And I thought, great, you know, these are so yummy. It's a nice little treat once in a while. And that was fine. And then I had them and it was not fine. <laughs> it was really not fine. And I'm not someone who actually, I mean, I've had gut health issues in the past, but more along the lines of just needing to replenish and restore my microbiome because I was on antibiotics literally from birth almost through my Um, mid twenties hmm. off and on very consistently. I know it's horrifying. So did a lot of work on cleaning up my gut health, but outside of just having some other downstream symptoms from that, I didn't have IBS symptoms. I didn't necessarily have issues with diarrhea or constipation or anything like that. And then I had this little packet of the smart sweets one day, and it was just like you said, like I couldn't leave the bathroom. I was in so much pain. I had the worst stomach and Mm -hmm. lower abdominal cramping. And I just thought, what in God's green earth is going on? And the only thing I had eaten differently was this little packet of smart sweets. I read the label, Stevia is gone, and now there's something called allulose. Mm -hmm. And I had actually just recently heard your episode and I thought, oh my God, they snuck this thing in. I had no idea that their formulation had shift, you know changed and I knew immediately. So I stopped them. All the symptoms went away within 24 hours and mm-hmm. I never had them again and I've avoided it ever since. But now I'm really glad that people are more aware right now of regulating blood glucose more, looking mm-hmm. at our blood sugar We know a little more about insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, how that leads to type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, all of these things. And so people are more sugar conscious, which I think is really positive overall. However, this opens up this huge door for the food industry Mm -hmm. to give us all of these sugar-free alternatives or non-caloric sweetener alternatives, right? We already had the aspartames and the artificial sweeteners that most people I think are trying to avoid. They know these are not good for us. So they're trying to avoid those. But then along comes something like allulose, which is touted as being Naturally occurring, right? And we're seeing it in all of these keto products. Yeah. So low carb, low sugar products, snacks, cookies, things like that. This is everywhere now. I'm seeing it in chocolate, all kinds of things, you name it. So talk to us about what this stuff is and sure. the difference between, especially what we find in nature, what the natural part of ios yeah. is, and then the difference between that and what they're actually putting in foods. So that was a multi-pronged Yeah, no,
1: (laughs) totally. And I'll share my exposure to allulose. And I'm going to tattle on myself here because one of my rules as the ingredient guru is if you don't know what it is, don't eat it until you really understand it when you're reading the label. And I do read the label. So I was at a health and wellness conference and there were these cookies and they, I looked at the ingredients and it said allulose and I was like, hmm you know, that's a new sugar because food producers are always looking for new sugars because as humans, we really respond to sugar. So they want to stuff as much as they can into our food. They've learned that a growing number of us do not want the artificial sweeteners because we know that they change your microbiome. They can actually cause you to gain weight. They can be cancer-causing, all kinds of different things, neurotoxic, all of that, developmental changes, everything. So they're shifting and looking for other things. So I didn't know what allulose was, but, and here's the really clever thing on their part, anything that ends in an Ose, O-S-E, is a naturally occurring sugar. right? So I felt comfortable eating it, even though I didn't know what it really was. Yeah, And I thought, oh, a cookie with a new kind of sugar that somehow is less processed because the calories on this do not match up and they had free samples and then at the end of the conference it was like hey take whatever you want so I grabbed like a couple more cookies why not I love a good cookie so I get home and I have the first cookie and my stomach doesn't feel well and I'm like huh what's that about I don't know like where's that coming from and then I had a few days later the second cookie and it happened again I went is it the cookie?" And then I had the third cookie and I was like, oh, wait a minute, it must be the cookie. And I started looking at it right. So it's like really shame on me because I should not have eaten it again after the first one. And I also should not have eaten it just because it said allulose. So I began to look it up. And one of the things that I discovered is allulose is indeed a naturally occurring sugar, it tends to be found in things like raisins and dates and that kind of thing, but it's in a very, very small amount. Right. Because of the way it's processed, we're all of a sudden to get able to get a whole bunch of it and manufacturers can put it in everything because they've figured out how to do this. And so I'm going to sort of go sideways for a second here and talk about another type of sweetener, which is agave. Mm, and yes. for a long time agave was the darling of the sweetener <laughs> world because it was a low it is a low glycemic sweetener. Right. Like you can this. you can take agave and it won't spike blood sugar. The challenge is we all know that high fructose corn syrup is bad for us. At this point we know it's bad for your liver because your liver is the only thing that can process fructose. So if you Mm -hmm, consume mm -hmm. too much, it really, you can gain weight. You can develop non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all kinds of things happen. Well, the way the indigenous cultures used agave was very different than the way we now use it in a processed form. High fructose corn syrup is 55% fructose by volume. Agave nectar, 70% (laughs) fructose by volume. So it's actually way worse for you. (laughs) So it's the process. I know, but here's the challenge. It's the processing. So they were able to go, oh, low glycemic, not a problem. And they sell massive amounts of it at the grocery store. And a lot of people who have blood sugar regulation issues go, oh, no, I got to have my agave. Like they want that sweet. Yeah. And they don't realize what they're doing to their liver. So allulose is kind of the same thing in a way. It's disruptive to the microbiome. But the challenge is because it's from a natural sugar, they're like, oh, naturally occurring. We've just processed right. it to the point where we can get way more out of it than you would ever normally eat. I don't even know how many dates you would have to eat to get the right. amount of allulose that they're gonna put in a formula such as a, a cookie or a, a protein bar or something like that. And because it is an Ose ending and because it, of the way the body does not process allulose, That's what causes some of the gut disruptions for people who are eating it. The body doesn't Mm -hmm. process it Mm -hmm. the same way. It has become the darling of the keto and paleo worlds, and they're stuffing it into
0: everything. Yeah. And I'm assuming too that people, well, I'm guessing that people assume that it's the main sugar when they say, oh, this comes from dates, raisins, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that people think, oh, that must be the main sugar in those fruits when actually the main source of sugar in those fruits is fructose. And then the allulose is this fraction, right? Mm -hmm. This tiny fraction of the sugar that's occurring in those, those fruits. Yes,
1: absolutely. And again, it's because food producers are always looking for a way to deliver more sweet. Mm-hmm. And part of the challenge that we run into is we also have to remember when the body does not process something, yeah. that's not a good thing. I mean, no. they're trying to sell us on that as if that's a good thing. Oh, the body doesn't process these sugars the same way. you know. And there are other examples of foods that we don't process well. In our food history that we tend to forget about because we're so eager to be able to have sweet without having it count
0: in some way. Hello, nutrition editors. If you've been listening and you're ready to put this work into practice in your own life, head over to joliverwellness.com and book a free 30-minute chat to learn more about coaching with me or to check out my self-study programs. I also invite you to join my email list where you'll hear from me a few times each month with recipes and strategies for reducing stress, improving your metabolic health and working out smarter, not harder. Subscribers will also receive exclusive offers on my programs that I don't share anywhere else. And you'll get early access to registration for my Body Liberation Together group program. I look forward to connecting with you and let's get back to the show. Yes. And I think the best example of that that you've mentioned is good old Olestra. <laughs> so many of my listeners are in our same generation and they remember, I think that was the late 90s, mm-hmm, maybe yeah. mid 90s when yeah. Olestra came out, when we were oh. all fat phobic and didn't want any fat in our food. Everything was fat free, low fat. And so they came up with this product called Olestra, and you could eat all the potato chips you wanted because they were essentially fat free. Yeah. Or low fat, and because you don't absorb the olestra. So tell us about that a little bit. <laughs> sure. And again, this
1: is, I want to start by saying as humans, we have this desire to be able to just eat whatever we want all the sugar, all the fat, all the whatever and somehow magically have nothing happen. And what's more (laughs) important is to learn how we shouldn't be trying to feed ourselves. We should be trying to nourish ourselves. And that's where you work with somebody like you to help figure out what's going on. How do we find that bio-individual solution to nourish our bodies? And when we do that, a lot of our cravings and a lot of the food
0: challenges that we're dealing with do actually go away. It's so true. And I like to remind people that the difference between earlier man and modern life now, yes, we are hardwired to seek out these high value foods, so Mm -hmm. to speak, because food didn't used to be easy to come by. You had to work to get your food. You had to hunt and gather and forage and Work to get our food. And so, high value foods that were high in fat or high in sugar were priceless because that would give you those extra calories for survival. So, your brain is hardwired to want these things, to desire them, because that would ensure your survival. Well, now in our modern world, we have access to everything all the time. It doesn't even have to be seasonal anymore. You just ship it from someplace where it is. And so we are not living, we're not working for our food anymore. We can literally stay on our couch and have it delivered to us. Yeah. So it's a very different environment that we're living in and our access to food has changed so drastically, but our hardwiring on a cellular level, mm-hmm. <laughs> neurological level has
1: not changed. We're designed to live in a time of famine yep. and yet we live for decades. Generations now in a time of feast, exactly, and so it's problematic. Yes. But back back to the Olestra because I love the, the story. Yeah. so good fun. Yeah. So <laughs> unfortunately, at a certain point scientists did a little bit of cherry picking, which for anybody who doesn't know is a really bad thing to do in science, and decided that fat was what was actually really bad for us. And we should eat fat-free. We should all aim to eat fat-free. That was the best thing for our hearts and the best thing for our metabolism. And the answer is no, that's actually the opposite. In any event, that could be a whole hour by itself.
0: Um, We thankfully know better now.
1: Yeah, we do know better. However, in the process of trying to meet that need, food producers discovered Olestra. And it's a type of trans fat. So first of all, really bad for your heart, not good for you, and your body can't process it. And so they Super were delighted, right? Exactly. And so they were delighted because your body can't process it, so you could eat all the fat you wanted, and it would have that mouth feel, and you would feel great because we're getting all that stimulation of being able to eat something that's creamy and rich and fatty and everything else. But you wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't affect you at least not the way they anticipated. <laughs> because yes. then what happened is, as your body tried to process this and couldn't, they began to discover people were having a lot of health issues, they termed it anal leakage. I call it leaky butt instead of leaky gut. Sexy. Yeah, right. And so a lot of people began to have problems with that. And even more than that, what they completely failed to take into account is that we have some very critical nutrients, A, Mm -hmm. D, E, K, which are all fat activated. So if you're not getting enough fat in your diet, all of a right. sudden you start to become nutritionally deficient because your body yeah. can't absorb these nutrients and utilize them for all the different things that it utilizes them for. And I just find it so interesting that in the beginning, back in the nineties, they'd say made with Olestra on the front of the package because they wanted right. everybody to know that big it was a yeah, big selling point. And then as we discovered, maybe it wasn't so good for you. It. Got moved, mm. and now it still exists. You can find it in things like fat-free potato chips and wow. other fat-free foods. Like anybody remember Snackwells, those cookies? Oh um, God, yes! I, and, I, I ate know, we, my body weight in Snackwells. sure. and think, wow, I'm being so good. I can have as many cookies as I want. <laughs> and it's still there. You have to read the ingredient panel. They don't mm-hmm. say that it's you know they're not emblazoning it on the package but they're still using it. And it's still bad for you. It's still not a good choice. Anytime we try to put something in our body that our body cannot utilize, it is going to have a negative effect. And now we're trying to do it with this new sweetener Mm. and it is causing microbiome issues. And I, I mean, you and I have talked about the fact that a lot of people who previously didn't have any kind of gut health issues, perhaps they had other things going on, they start eating all these things with allulose and they're starting to have issues. And it's exactly like what happened with your little gummies. Mm -hmm. Manufacturers are not going to tell you that they changed the sweetener. The only way for you to find it is to be consistent about reading the label and to recognize that you cannot trust them to keep a formula exactly the same.
0: Right. So true. And I have a question for you too about the label. With the allulose, does that have to be actually listed under added sugars? On the label. No. (laughs) So that's another little tricky point, isn't it? Yeah. Because of the way it's processed,
1: they got a little bit of a pass from the government. Now that may change (laughs) because, because the rules do change from time to time, but it's one of those where it does not count the same way because it's from a natural source. Mm. So it's not considered an added sugar. And the only way you're going to find it is to read the, and unfortunately, very few of us read the label. (laughs) Most people who read the label, if they do read the label, are reading the nutrition panel because they're after how many calories is a serving, how much fat, how much sugar, how much salt, whatever their focus is. Forgetting that you have to do math because if a serving size is two cookies and you eat six cookies, you got to recalculate all the math. They just go, oh, I ate six cookies and look, it's only 140 calories. It doesn't (laughs) work that way. Uh, But even fewer people read the ingredient panel. and as far as I'm concerned, the ingredient panel is actually
0: way more important than the nutrition panel. Agreed. Agreed. Because it's coming back to the difference between that belief that food is just calories Mm -hmm. versus the understanding that food is information, right? Mm -hmm. It's a chemical messenger that tells your body what to do, what not to do, and powers every single process that's happening in your body. So, and, and I, always... I,
1: I love that you share that because one, of I actually sat down and figured this out one time. I don't know if you remember this. I don't think they, I haven't seen them in the store for the longest time anymore, but they used to have these 100 calorie snack packs yes like that was the perfect size snack 100 calories and everybody would go crazy because you could buy 100 calories of thin cookies or (laughs) chips or pretzels or whatever and then again we have medical advice sometimes saying oh calories calories calorie just like eat less exercise more you'll be fine all calories are equal and all calories as you and i know are not equal not equal sat down and i figured it out once one medium-sized apple is approximately 100 calories it's mm-hmm. nature's perfect 100-calorie snack pack. 10 peanut M&Ms also happens to be 100 calories. Right, right. And, and I'm going to ask you to think about that one beautiful apple versus 10 yeah. peanut M&Ms and think about which one your body is going to get more nutrition from. Right. And which one is yeah. going to make you feel better because the apple not only is going to provide nutrients and fiber and all of that, it's going to actually nourish your body. Right. Whereas when you start consuming, yeah, exactly. Yeah. you start consuming sugar and artificial ingredients and the colors and everything else, like all of a sudden yep. your body's working overtime to try to get some nutrition out of those 10 M&Ms, like maybe a little protein from the peanut. Right, and that's part of why people sometimes I believe find themselves in that snack graze all day mentality because sure. their body is starving for nutrition, yeah, and they're not actually they're again you're feeding yourself, not nourishing yourself,
0: right, right, and from a chemistry versus calories standpoint, you're not getting real nutrients will stimulate leptin, mm-hmm. which tells your brain like I'm full it and satiated, like you can stop eating now. But if you're not getting real nutrients, your body will keep asking for more food Mm -hmm. because it's trying to get you to feed it something it can use. Yes. And if you're not giving your body food, it can use, it's just going to use, it's just going to store it, Mm
1: -hmm. whatever you're eating
0: really efficiently, because it's not super useful, but it's okay if you are starving to death. So let's just store it for an emergency. (laughs) Obviously, that's an oversimplified explanation. It is. It is.
1: And I also want to share that it's challenging sometimes for people if we're trying to change our dietary habits, especially if we've got decades of eating a certain way. Of course. This is not meant to be a, you're going to listen to this and you go home, throw out everything in your pantry, go to the grocery store and bim, bam, you're done. This is one step at a time learning where can you make changes. And I think the first habit is to begin to read the label and then figure out if you see a pattern if you're like man we have a lot of color in our food artificial color or gee I'm seeing this bht bha a lot or oh my god carrageenan don't even eat that yeah, just figure out what you're seeing all the time knock that out and then begin to to chip away at those other ingredients while you're working with someone
0: such as yourself to replace those with nourishing foods yeah exactly Exactly. Because I think that it's, again, all fine and good that we're starting to pay attention more to high sugar, high glycemic foods and Mm -hmm. wanting to move away from that. That's great. But let's do it the right way (laughs) by just increasing the nutrient density of our food and maybe moving away from those sweeter foods. Because the more you eat sweet foods, especially intensely sweet foods, the more your brain will ask for it. And as we start to gradually reduce those really sweet foods, the cravings reduce and things that didn't taste very sweet to you before suddenly taste really lovely and sweet. You can have that apple and be like, wow, this is amazing. It's so sweet. And you can try that double pump vanilla caramel (laughs) macchiato or whatever you were drinking before. And it's like, oh my God, I can't even tolerate that. It's so sweet. It's disgusting to me. And I've had so many clients experience that where they just have moved away kind of gradually from those hyper sweet foods and and they're no longer appealing.
1: Yeah. And also learning when you start reading the label, you all of a sudden discover ingredients in things that you had no idea. Yes. So part of the challenge is if you have savory foods that we think of as savory condiments, crackers, you mm-hmm. know, other things like that, all of a sudden you're like, dang, there's a lot of sugar in that, right? right. You're eating sugar in those things, spaghetti sauce, whatever. Yeah. How much more sweet do you need for dessert to taste sweet? Yeah. But That's the beautiful great. thing is our body will respond and our palate actually can change as we reduce our sugar consumption we adjust and discover that things taste much better than we thought. It's so true. And I've seen that happen
0: pretty rapidly with people. Yeah. In a matter of days often. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So talk about, you mentioned disruption to the microbiome mm-hmm. with allulose. I'd love for you to speak into that a little bit more and give us some more details on that, because I do think that we are also becoming more aware of the importance of our microbiome and healthy beneficial gut flora. So we don't want that to get messed sure.
1: up. Sure. Sure. I think one of the challenges that we tend to forget is our microbiome, our gut really is the core of well-being, because. Yes. The vast majority of our neurotransmitters, our brain chemicals are manufactured there. That's where the things that we put into our body are broken down into micronutrients and other things that actually nourish our body. And so anything that changes that is going to have an effect that's going to ripple out throughout the body. And there are a number of studies that are starting to come out that are showing that allulose itself specifically alters the microbiome. And so that means without doing anything other than adding this particular substance, we can have an impact on the bacteria and the healthy benefit. My friend and mentor, Liz Lipsky, refers to them as our pets. She's like, We take <laughs> care of our pets, they take care of us. So, these organisms that live inside our gut that help us to be healthy and nourished and strong in so many ways across our entire body, if they're not functioning properly, the rest of us is not going to function properly as well and the challenge is we forget that it tends to be this downstream effect because if all of a sudden our our microbiome is off kilter then the healthy bacteria aren't those colonies aren't strong, they're not breeding the way that they're supposed to, and then we start becoming perhaps nutritionally depleted or our mood changes because we're not getting enough of the neurotransmitters that we need, it really becomes problematic. It's not just we're eating something that maybe caused somebody to have an achy
0: tummy or a little bit of diarrhea. It yeah. has an overall body impact. Absolutely. And mental health is such a challenge for so many people these days. Yeah. And there are enough insults to our microbiome that we have no control over. Mm -hmm. So we can't be psychotic about it. Obviously, we have to do the best that we can and live our lives. However, I think wherever we can help to support our gut and our microbiome because of all of those other insults, be it antibiotics in our food, chemicals sprayed on our crops, Mm -hmm. pollution in our air, products that people are using, you name it. having to take antibiotics.
1: yeah, These
0: are all major insults that can disrupt our microbiome that we may not be able to control, right? So when it comes to our food, making choices that are not damaging is really, really crucial. And I can't tell you how many people that have seen a massive change in their level of anxiety or depression when they start really paying attention to their nutrition and gut health.
1: And I also want to add that I think that for so many people, because as humans, we've been taught to essentially eat on autopilot, Mm -hmm. we also Mm -hmm. haven't been taught to make that connection between how we're eating and how we're feeling.
0: Yes, so so
1: true. (laughs) So when we begin to pay attention to that, we become more mindful about what and how we're eating we all of a sudden realize that there are things that we can do to truly nourish our bodies and to help us feel better. And that requires becoming really proactive on your own behalf, because it's very easy to get sideswiped by snazzy ad campaigns that say, oh, like this is really great and won't impact your blood sugar the same way or five for a dollar cheap food is never a good choice by the way (laughs) just it's going to fill your tummy but it's not going to fill your cells it doesn't put anything in the gas tank and we get so conditioned to that that we don't realize what we're doing and so it does take effort and working with somebody and really getting that foundation in place. And all of a sudden you begin to start feeling better and you maybe have better energy and you're sleeping better and your stomach is better. I I will also share that the vast number of people who have terrible, you know, elimination habits Mm -hmm. is really bad in this country because nobody wants to talk about the fact that they only poop every two or three days or sometimes once a week and they don't realize like you're supposed to poop every day. So again, (laughs) right. Everything that impacts your microbiome, that impacts how often you eliminate. And if you're not eliminating, then those toxins are building up in your system as well. Like
0: it becomes this awful spiral. Yeah. Yeah. I always refer to that in terms of a pond or a lake. If you have health, healthy fresh water sort of flowing in and flowing out everything sort of stays happy and there's this nice equilibrium but if there's no outflow mm-hmm. algae this gunk can like build up too much and it just gets stagnant and funky and fish die and it's our body obviously is a much more complex system but i think it's a good way of illustrating that's the same thing like if you're not putting good in and then eliminating appropriately yeah. stuff's getting funky it's not going to be it good <laughs> It's not going to be good. And I think too, when we're talking about metabolic health and fat loss, which is a priority for a lot of people, especially Mm -hmm. if they're trying to do keto or something like that, they now have identified specific strains of bacteria that can help regulate fat loss and metabolism. And I mean, there's just so many layers to this. We can't underestimate the importance of the beneficial flora Mm -hmm. in our body, in our gut, on our skin, like all of these things. So. And that's why we also want to make sure that what we're eating
1: is actually contributing to a healthy balance rather than breaking it down or interrupting
0: it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'll include in the show notes, everybody, the links to the studies that Mira is mentioning so that you can go check those out. (laughs) So what symptoms should people be watching for? I mean, you mentioned some of the sort of just GI discomfort, but- If they're eating allulose, (laughs) or maybe they don't realize they are, what are the kinds of symptoms that that people are experiencing or should be on the lookout for?
1: Typically, I have found with people that I've worked with who are experiencing problems with this sweetener, it tends to be the typical low-level digestive stuff, like you bloat. So you eat something and all of a sudden it's like, oh, my pants are too tight. Like I got to unbutton, like the belly blows up a little bit or it can be some low-level rumbling, grumbling, lots of noise going on down there. It can be uh, pain. It can be achiness in the gut, like it doesn't feel good. And that tends to be generally lower down, all the way up to either both constipation or diarrhea. So anything that is causing some kind of gut health issue, I think that it's typically a good idea to stop and do some food journaling and look at what's in what you're eating and see if there's a common pattern. Because again, you know, we touched on this earlier, food producers, first of all, food company mergers happen all the time. So a new company may buy a company and then they'll wait a year to whatever, and then they start changing the formulations to make it better for them. Or maybe yes. it's the same manufacturer and they're thinking, oh, we're going to jump on the you know keto bandwagon. And so we're going to do this because allulose, it used to be when, it, when I first found out about it a couple of years ago, there was only a little bit now. Right. It is startling how much is on yeah. the shelves at the grocery store and in a lot of the health food, health food stores, you know, in a right. lot of those products, it has become the new darling of yeah. that that world and it's really not a great
0: choice. And I've seen so many well-respected practitioners, health experts, doctors promoting this, Mm. which is kind of horrifying to me. Like, I'm just this little nutrition coach from Seattle. And if I'm horrified by this and I know about this, that this is problematic, and Mira knows about this, like, why? Where is the disconnect here? It it just blows me away that this is being promoted by people, brain health experts, and everyone. And again, I think it's leading back to the Oh well, it's not spiking your blood sugar.
1: Well, and it's from a natural source. So one Uh, of the challenges is I used to I used to say to people anything that ends in an O is a sugar, and we don't want to eat too much of it, but it's reasonable. Anything that ends in an all is a sugar alcohol. And we generally want to avoid eating too much of those because they can have a laxative effect or a digestive upsetting effect. Anything else is an artificial sweetener except for isomalt, which is a sugar alcohol that doesn't yeah. end in all. Like that was pretty much the rule. Well, now we have to change that and go anything that ends in an O's except allulose. Yeah. Because it technically comes from a natural base and because of the way they've processed it, they're they're allowed to get away with it. And it's really not the first time when you stop and think about the fact that agave nectar technically is fructose and fructose is also a natural sugar, but we just don't want to eat too much. Right. And so the challenges were we think if a little bit is okay, a lot must be better. And when it comes to these kinds of sweeteners, the answer is no, it's not.
0: So, talk to us about what you recommend instead, because I typically recommend that people use organic stevia, mm-hmm. ideally the kind that's still a green powder that's mm-hmm. not processed, not the easiest to find, or organic monk fruit that mm-hmm. doesn't have erythritol and other things added to it, but what are your recommendations? Great question. <laughs> and
1: I I like to start by saying, I think the first thing people should consider doing is to look at just how much sweet is in their daily life and trying to figure out how to do less. And this is one of those things where I really don't encourage people to muscle their way through and try to go from you know, whatever their level is yeah, to none all or nothing. Because, right, because that's just going to be miserable Un- unless we're dealing with candida, in which case we really do just have to right, rid our yeah. teeth and get Gotta through it. Uh, yep. it. It's about bringing it down by degrees because that's going to allow your palate to reset. And that's going to allow you to make measurable, sustainable changes. That's the goal. I am not opposed to a little bit of things like honey or maple syrup or even a date syrup. Those yeah. can be very reasonable, but we want to do them in moderation. right? Yeah. So you really don't want to use a lot that. of those. And then <laughs> I also agree with you that for the stevia, it needs to be plain stevia, nothing else in it. And unfortunately, so when stevia first came out, you could only find it in a health food store. It was not allowed to be (laughs) sold as a sweetener. It was sold, yes, as a nutritional supplement. And it wasn't until Cargill and Coca-Cola decided to get together and chemically process it so that they could create a new product that it got approved by the FDA to be sold as a sweetener. So there was like this midnight approval by the FDA. And then all of a sudden we had truvia and purvia which are not really stevia. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. And that's that's a problem. But A little bit of stevia is certainly reasonable. A little bit of monk fruit is not a bad thing. But again, remembering not too much. I don't like when I see people, they're at a health food restaurant, or sorry, they're at a restaurant, and they're reaching for the sweetener packets, and the restaurant has the green packets, which is stevia, and they pull three (laughs) of those out, and they rip them open. I'm like, ugh. But again, part of the challenge is in the beginning when they were first doing that, it was pure stevia. Now it's stevia cut with erythritol, stevia cut with dextrose, which is corn, stevia cut with maltitol, which is corn. Like There's a lot of different things. And so you really want to get, I love that you're suggesting the green stuff and just a little bit. And I also want to encourage people to remember to go with their taste buds, because if it is pure stevia, just opening the container will put enough
0: sweet into the air that you can <laughs> taste it without even putting any on your tongue. I found too, I mean, so many people don't like that aftertaste that stevia mm-hmm. can have, but mm-hmm. I find that there's actually less of that with the, the green unprocessed, stuff, right? real green stevia leaf. Yeah. So if that's something that turns you off, everybody try the, <laughs> the real and, stuff.
1: And that. I- Again, you know, because I am not opposed to a little bit of Cylan, which is the date syrup. For example, you if you're someone who has that genetic marker that makes Stevia taste awful for you, right but you wanted to have some, if you mix it with just a drop or two of the date syrup, that generally tends to cut it enough or a little bit of maple syrup as well. And I think that the the important takeaway here is that it's not just which sweetener is best. We're not looking to get that sugar fix without paying the price. We're looking to reduce how much we consume overall. And so for a lot of people, that's like learning to drink unsweet tea instead of sweet tea or having yeah. less in your coffee or taking a recipe for, like I said at the top, I love a good cookie, but my cookie yeah. recipes don't have as much as what's in a traditional recipe. You can cut it back quite a bit and it still tastes really
0: good. Agreed. Yeah. And I am admittedly a recovering sugar sugarholic. Addict. <laughs> oh, I, I shudder to think what I used to consume. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a long time and it's still something I have to walk that line (laughs) because it's a slippery slope. If I have too much, Mm -hmm. then I want it all the time. So I really have to limit what I have, Mm -hmm. but I've found I have what I call preemptive cheats. I think I stole that term from Jill Coleman. Thanks, Jill. (laughs) Dark chocolate is one for me, really high cacao Mm -hmm. percentage, dark chocolate. I can have a few bites of that. It's so rich that it kind of does the trick. And often those really high cacao percentage ones have less sugar in them. Mm -hmm. and So that will work for me. But I do love honey. I do love a good sweet. Crunchy cookie is my nemesis. So I have to really be careful with it. But I found and what I encourage people to do is practice what I call strategic indulgence. Mm -hmm. So really choosing the times that you indulge in something wisely and- Discriminatingly, instead of just eating these things all the time because we want them, they sound good. I find you actually enjoy them more when you're having them less often, and it's really special, and you're savoring it, and you're mindful, and you're more present versus just kind of that mindless, you know, shoveling that we can often do when we're anesthetizing or avoiding unpleasant emotions or boredom or whatever stress, all the things that can trigger those desires for sweet foods and sugar or high starchy carb crunchy, salty.
1: And I also, that's such a great point. And I also love to encourage people to actually remember that it's not just about eating, it's about tasting. Mm. So for Mm -hmm. example, with dark chocolate, you know, a a lot of people, when they eat chocolate, they're munching on a bar. So you're chewing it a few times. Most of us don't chew enough. We should chew more. But Is you're you're chewing and then you're swallowing, so you're going to eat more. But if you break off a piece and you put it on your tongue, you push it up to your roof of your mouth, and you just let it sit there and melt. The mm. I'm salivating, yeah. just thinking about it, <laughs> the the <laughs> flavor. Right. I know the flavor of that is going to m- melt over your taste buds and be so much more satisfying. You don't need a lot. Yes. And, yeah. or for people who want to chew, if it's like a, a hard chocolate, you chew a few and then just hold it there and let it savor. The other thing is with things like potato chips and pretzels and all of that, we are biologically wired to love food at a certain decibel level. Like, that sounds so weird, but it's really true. And especially those foods tend to be salty. So I encourage people to, first of all, serve yourself in another container. Don't eat out of the bag. You will eat more that way. So if you wait, if you... tell us
0: what you mean by decibel level. You mean like the sound the of it? The sound. How
1: crunchy? How crunchy it is. We okay. actually biologically respond to certain decibel levels with our food. That's why potato chips wow. are at a certain like stale potato chi- not stale soft potato chips. Nobody loves those. It's soft true. Pretzels, it's true. Only if they're really salty and then they're bready. But pretzel sticks, pretzel yeah. twists. Crunch, crunch, crunch. We just, we love that. That must be reminding us
0: of gnawing on bones from, from our primitive days. I don't maybe, know. Maybe. That's so fascinating. I didn't know that. I mean, I've, I know that we tend to like crunchy food because it can release some tension in our jaw. So mm-hmm. if we're stressed, crunchy food sounds really appealing, but I did not but know the about actual the sound, sound of it. Of it. Yeah.
1: How yeah. much. And, and so I remember <laughs> learning about the fact that it's a certain, I don't remember what the decibel level is, but there's a certain decibel, a certain noise level that we love with those foods. And so what I encourage people to do is serve yourself a little bit in a bowl, eat a few to get that crunch, and then suck on a few to get the salt. Like Mm. literally just hold a potato chip in your mouth. And then you'll after like two of those, you'll be like, "Mm, too much salt. And then maybe you'll crunch one or two more, but you're done because your body got that craving. It got what it needed and you're done. You want to know my go-to
0: thing? Sure. (laughs) This (laughs) might totally (laughs) gross people out because it grosses my poor husband out. So whenever we cook salmon at the house, he doesn't like the skin on the salmon, mm-hmm. but I love like a piece of salmon with a beautiful, crispy skin on it. What I do is I peel the skin after we cook the salmon fillets and I put it back in the pan and <laughs> I fr- crisp I it it's up, crispy and then I salt the heck out of those suckers and then I stick them in the fridge and I have like salmon skin chips there and they are go. the crunchiest, saltiest, most satisfying thing ever. And I know people are just probably cringing right now, but- I think it's delicious <laughs> and it really is truly the most satisfying, crunchy, salty thing ever. Um, and it's loud. So maybe that's part of it.
1: So, And I'm going to tell you that to me sounds like the fish version of a pork rind. It is. And exactly people love is. pork right. rinds. So it's why true. would they be grossed out about the fact that you're just making your own fish rinds? I think that's very clever. So there you go. Salmon rinds. There we Salmon go.
0: We have a new product here. There right. you go. Still My those next in career. the store,
1: make a million dollars.
0: For some reason, I don't know how that would fly, but
1: I love the you, idea. You never know. You never know. <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the other things we have to remember is when we are being mindful about how we're eating and, and what affects us whether it's because we're eating for emotion or because we're bored or a lot of different reasons that come into that, the more mindful we can be about it, the more in control we can be.
0: Absolutely. Because
1: I promise you, food producers spend a mind-numbing amount of money trying to figure out how to market their products to us. They figure out what are the buzzwords that we like. Those all appear on the front of the package. They figure out what colors, what shapes, what different marketing ploys appeal to us. They even hook people up to MRI machines and feed them so that they can watch their brain light up because they're looking for, there's this really great book by um, Michael Moss called Salt, Sugar, Fat. And he talks about this in his book. They hook them up because they're looking for something called the bliss point, the perfect yes. point of salt, sugar, and fat. And so it's really kind of amazing how they do that. And then we are unaware. And so we get caught in these traps that we're being sold hyperpalatable food in a presentation that we go, ooh, like new and novel or improved or appealing because of color, shape, size, words, whatever. It's really challenging to be a mindful eater in this modern
0: world. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So you've touched on many points here, but I'd love for you to sort of sum up what listeners should be looking for on product packaging. And ingredient lists specifically. I know we've heard, oh, it shouldn't have more than five ingredients. Well, what if those five ingredients are nasty? I mean, (laughs) I don't know that that's necessarily the answer. I've seen plenty of quite healthy foods with many ingredients, Mm -hmm. but they aren't processed, and so Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. But give us kind of your nutshell, like how to read a label, because I have a handout for my clients that shows them how to read a label to determine the glycemic impact of that food, how much it's going to spike your blood sugar. And we always, of course, talk about ingredients, but I'd love to hear your kind of big takeaway for people when they start to read labels and ingredient lists.
1: So the biggest thing, of course, is to begin the habit of reading the label. And I will share that I wrote a book called The Pantry Principle, how to read the label and understand what's really in your food. And and in my book. Show notes. Yeah. In my book, I have the seven simple rules for healthy grocery eating. And so that is my go-to. With your permission, I'll just run through them really quickly.
0: Awesome. Okay.
1: Number one, do you have to look it up? If you don't know yeah. <laughs> what it is, you shouldn't eat it. Number two, does it have a number? I promise you there is no carrot 12. There is no banana nine. Like it just does not exist. A number means yeah, that it's some a kind one. of a chemical. Yeah. Does it have four or more syllables? Now, this is one that you kind of have to think about because macadamia, five syllables. Mm-hmm, it's a real mm-hmm. word. We know what it is. It's delicious. But yeah. for most of the multisyllabic ingredients... Those are chemical names. And so we just don't want to eat those. We want to eat real food. Is it unpronounceable? And again, this is one that you have to think about or you have to at least learn, because I promise you when quinoa first came out, nobody knew how to to pronounce it. But if if you really don't know- Americans are not the
0: best with our pronunciation.
1: But if you don't know, do yourself a favor and wait until you do know. Like, Go home, look it up, figure it out. And then from there, make a decision. Is this something you're going to include or not? Does it end in ATE? Another one you have to think about because mm. pomegranate ends in ATE and we love those. But so yes. do sorbates, gallates, nitrates, all those sulfites, all those other things. So we just don't want to do that. And sulfite is ITE, by the way, not ATE, but close enough. Is it enriched? And this tends mm. to be things like breads and pastas and that sort of thing. But enriched is where they take usually a grain, they strip it, remove like 20 or more nutrients. And then they have to put some back. So a long time yeah. ago, when they figured out how to process bread and make like really soft, white, fluffy bread, people started to get sick because they had removed too many of the B vitamins and the iron. Yeah. So now they have to put them back and that's called an enriching process. So if it
0: says enriched, don't eat it.
1: And then- the- and don't you
0: see that, sorry to interrupt, but don't no. you see that too? I've seen this on almond milks and things that are, mm. I think people are trying to move away from dairy, which I actually support fully, but it can also lead us into more weird additives and things like yes. that. And I think they're trying to replace nutrients that may be found in dairy. So, by so usually,
1: dairy yeah, usually I don't think I've seen, well, no, it's enriched with vitamin D, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen other enrichment, but the reason for the enrichment in vitamin D, it actually also happens in milk is because we need more D and it's fat soluble. Yeah. So they put it in those things. But the big challenge that I see with some foods is that they're actually fortifying them. So fortification is different than enrichment. Okay. Fortification is where you add something that was never in that food to begin with, like Calcium in orange juice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, so that's fortified.
1: And somebody decided that it was a good idea to drink an eight-ounce glass of sugar with calcium in it rather than getting calcium from either dairy, if you happen to consume dairy, or leafy greens and sesame and all those other beautiful calcium-rich foods. Like, you do not have to drink milk in order to get enough calcium. You can get it from other things. Absolutely, and yep. then the, the last rule is, is it all capital letters? If you see something, mm-hmm. EDTA, TBHQ like that simply is an abbreviation for a really long chemical yeah. name, and they're allowed to shrink it down so that it will fit on the label. So those are, those are the seven simple rules to get you started. Obviously, it goes deeper than that because we want great. to look at what kinds of sugars and all of that. But, but that's a good
0: way to start. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. That's super helpful. Yeah. So lastly, how can we as consumers put pressure on food companies Mm. to be more transparent and stop using these harmful ingredients? Because like, as you said, there are billions of dollars going into the marketing of these foods because they're making even more by selling these highly addictive and potentially harmful foods. So how can we best, you know, I always say we should vote with our fork and our grocery dollar, Mm -hmm. Um, but that can get really complex. So what are your recommendations for people when they're trying to make a change?
1: I will share. I agree with you vote with your wallet because you can call the companies, but you would spend a lot of time doing that. And quite frankly, they're in the business of making money. If people stop buying things, they will change. And the example I like to use on that, and there will always be people who are going to say, I don't care, like, you know, whatever. And there are companies who you wouldn't believe the products that I see that are coming out. And I'm like, why? Why would you do that? (laughs) You know, they just right now, the big thing is nostalgia. They're going after the nostalgia market. So they're making, you know, like donut cereal and taking certain flavors and crossing them with other things because they're trying to tap into that nostalgia market. But for those of us who care about the products that we're eating, if you stop buying it, they will stop making it. And the biggest example I use to highlight that is high fructose corn syrup. Mm
0: -hmm. When it first
1: came out, It was the big darling sweetener because it's super cheap to make. And we grow way too much corn in this country. So we have to figure out other things that we can do with it. And they started all those stupid commercials like, hey, you want a popsicle? No, it's got high fructose corn syrup in it. Really? What's wrong with high fructose corn syrup? And then the other person goes, uh, like they're stupid. Yeah. Now we know that high fructose corn syrup is really bad for you. They did actually try to change the name at one point from high fructose corn syrup to corn sugar, because they thought that that would be what, yeah, they tried really hard (laughs) to change the name because they thought that consumers would respond better if it said corn sugar. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the FDA said, no, you can't change the name. (laughs) Uh, Although even if they had, I would have said, corn sugar is bad for you. Don't eat it.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Surprising. um, Good one on the FDA's part.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) Rare. (laughs) Well, and, and part of the, well, that could be a whole other talk, but part of right? the challenge yeah. is, you know, there's a lot of revolving door politics that happen mm-hmm. from big food companies. People go in and then they go back and it's that's a whole issue there. But even more than that, as more and more people just said, we're just not going to buy high fructose corn syrup. We got away from the fact that they were using so much of it in everything to the fact that now we see products that on the front of the package say no hfcs yeah in big letters cuz they know consumers want that yeah so by by choosing to buy certain things that don't have that they will eventually notice that people are not buying what they're selling and they will figure it out cuz again they spend millions of dollars paying attention the grocery stores pay lots of money figuring out what's happening on their shelves. You know, grocery store margins are very thin. They're actually only about 3%, which is kind of mind boggling Mm. when you think about it. But they, so they pay a lot of attention to what people do. And then the food producers pay a lot of attention either because they want to create new products to sell more to brand customers you know, across your life cycle or because they're looking at buying another company and what are they going to do with those products? What's their, Mm -hmm. they're not buying the company so much as
0: buying the consumers that are branded to that company. Exactly. I think a a prime example of that is if you, I saw a graphic once recently, can't remember who put it out. It might've been EWG, but it was a graphic that showed all the parent companies of a lot of the organic Oh, I
1: think that was Cornucopia Institute. Yes, they had this graphic that said, who owns your food? And it is really eye opening. And unfortunately, the web of who owns your food can be very challenging to stay on top of.
0: That's why I subscribe to all those (laughs) newsletters. Thank you. Thank you for doing all this so that we don't have to, Mira. (laughs) Well, that's my tagline. I do the research so you don't have to. (laughs) Yes. I love that. I love that. Everybody I work with is a very, very busy professional. Mm -hmm. and They don't. They don't have time to go digging around and doing all this research. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, not so much the people that I work with, because they usually come to me with some level of savvy But I frequently hear people say, well, it wouldn't be available for sale or it wouldn't be FDA approved if it was safe, if it wasn't Mm -hmm. safe. And it's like that they don't have your best interest at heart. They have their bottom line Mm -hmm. at heart. And that's just like within the medical system. We we have to be our own advocate. We have to be critical thinkers Mm -hmm. or learn how to be a critical thinker, be a label reader and start to take some responsibility for our own health and well-being because no one's going to do it for us. And certainly not big agriculture or big food.
1: We also have to remember, again, their primary business is not making food. It's making money. Food is yep. simply the way that they do it. And I will yeah. say there are some wonderful companies out there that make great products. There are also some really fabulous small local vendors. I encourage people to try to connect with your local farmer as much as you can. If there's a CSA or a farmer's market or something like that near you, if you can't find one of those, there are companies available where you can buy your meat online from a source that does it well or you know there's imperfect produce seems to be taking over in misfit markets where we have ugly produce mm-hmm. it's still delicious yeah. it's still yeah. good for us it just doesn't have to be as perfect as the grocery store it's about doing what's right for you and your family rather than simply sort of going along with the main flow i my one of my other taglines is i encourage people to be what i call brand disloyal yeah, you never, I like that. Never know what they're gonna change or what they're gonna do.
0: Yeah. Brand disloyal and I think trend wary. Yes. <laughs> Everybody loves a bandwagon, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I so often see people taking a supplement or eating a new th- product or whatever it is because it's trendy or some celebrity has done it. And mm-hmm. I kind of roll my eyes because I've always been sort of the non-trend follower my whole life, but I think that I'm the the exception to the rule. <laughs> Most people do love that. And if someone's promoting it and they can feel like they're, you know, current and on trend, they love that. And that's fine, but maybe just again, employ that critical thinking a little bit more and look into what is actually here. Just because somebody, maybe even a famous doctor, is promoting it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Right. And I think there's
1: comfort in having somebody else make those decisions for you.
0: Yeah. Especially if we're not yeah.
1: that connected to our body and we don't feel well. You know, it's, it's, it is work. It's not easy to make yeah. those shifts. I, I mean, I, I remember in the beginning when I was having to do that for myself, there were days when it was really hard, you know, and, yeah. and not, not the least of which was because I unfortunately chose the the wrong approach when I was making some of these changes because it was like my house, my pantry, my rules and my three children were like caught in the broadside of that and we had some awful arguments because they were mm. used to eating certain things and they wanted those things. And sure. instead it should have been, hey, I'm going to go buy these three things and you're going to tell me which one you like. And we're making a change because it's better for us, you know, but, but getting their involvement and getting their buy-in rather than just going, this is the way it is, you know, and to also remember that it's not about perfect. It's about progress and it's about that sustainable effort. In the beginning, it's really hard because you may have family members who go, oh, you know how hard it is to feed you? like, and so then you feel guilty. So then you don't want to say anything. And the object there is to say, that's fine. I don't mean to create an issue for you. Would it be helpful if I brought either my own food or a dish to share or those kinds of things to, to learn to not shop on autopilot Mm-hmm. But also, we don't want to spend 10 hours at the grocery store, change one thing at a time. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. this particular aisle, these are the things I buy there. I'm going to take the time to look for better pickles or better condiments or whatever it is. Small changes, because if you take those baby steps a little bit at a time, I promise you, three months, six months, a year down the road, you're going right. to look back and go, wow, look at how much has changed. But if Absolutely. You try to do it all at
0: once. It's really, yeah. really hard. It's a it's recipe for burnout, especially yeah. if you're already living a demanding lifestyle and you're busy and you have a, you know, challenging career. Whatever. I always tell people start with the low hanging fruit. What feels the easiest for you? Just start there. Yeah. And then build on that. And you're right. It, you know, it. It also helps me to remember how quickly, like the last few years have flown by, or the last year or six months, and. When we're looking ahead, it can sometimes seem so daunting, like, oh, God, I have to do this for, you know, how long, how many months is this going to take me or how long do I have to try, you know, to eat this way, whatever. But as you chip away at these small steps, like just starting to read your labels, just starting to be more mindful about your choices, it does have this wonderful compounding effect over time. And then before you know it, it's, you've made a massive lifestyle change versus just trying to do the all or nothing thing and burning out really quickly because mm-hmm. it's a skill, right? It's this yeah. new skill that we're trying to develop. And it takes energy, mental, physical, and emotional energy. And so if we're outputting too much of that too hard, too fast, like it's just not you you can't maintain that and, and love the rest of your life.
1: And and also invariably, I'm sure your clients find this a lot, as you begin to make those small mindful changes. You discover that your food cravings have gone away. Yeah. Like now you're you're hungry, but you're not craving. Yeah. You also have generally tend to stabilize a little bit more because you're nourishing your body. We don't have the three o'clock. I got to shake down a candy machine. Where is it? Or my other joke is nine o'clock at night. You're sitting on the sofa with your best, two best friends, Ben and Jerry. (laughs) And then the spoon <laughs> hits the bottom of the container and you're like, what just happened? Like, yeah. Where'd that come from? That doesn't oh, happen anywhere.
0: Right.
1: right. And, and I mean, I will confess I used to live in Vermont and the Ben and Jerry's factory. They do say <laughs> our philosophy is one container, one spoon, one serving, but really <laughs> that's not the truth. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Yeah, And I will say I used to love Ben and Jerry's. They that's a company that has changed mm-hmm. because they got bought by Unilever, and oh. their ingredients used to be a whole lot better than
0: they are now. Right, and when you read the label, it's like sad. I can see it. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. But you're right that it does get easier because we become food becomes more of a tool for us yeah. instead of being something that we are enslaved to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: or by I think that that's a really really good point to emphasize that you start to understand food as yes still for pleasure and enjoyment and connection and celebration all the things that food means to us. And I'm kind of a broken record on this. I've said this before on other episodes, but it's no longer controlling you and driving you in a way that doesn't serve you. And because of that, it gets easier to make choices that do serve you well over time because your body is much happier functioning more (laughs) optimally and including our neurotransmitters, which often are, are what are driving cravings for us. So you're not getting those crazy imbalances, maybe in your dopamine, serotonin, et cetera, that you're feeling the need to get that hit
1: mm, because you're,
0: true. Yeah. you're synthesizing that appropriately versus robbing yourself of it. Well, this has been such a fun convo, Mira. Thank you. And I hope that everyone is inspired to avoid allulose, start <laughs> reading their labels, yeah. <laughs> start voting more with your wallet and your fork. But tell us a little bit, you mentioned your book, tell us more about where people can find you, what you've got going on right now. And of course, as always, everybody, I will put this in the show notes so that you can link to all of Mira's information. Well, thank you so much. the easiest way to find me online, I'm
1: known as the Ingredient Guru, so you can find me there on Instagram, YouTube, whatever. The big thing that I have going on is that I have a class called the Preparedness Pantry Masterclass. This cool. is where I teach people how to build a pantry that will have whole, nourishing, real foods that their family wants to eat. In case they need it in an emergency situation and emergencies can be a lot of things, not just a natural disaster. It can be a shutdown of some kind, or there's a reason why you can't get there, that kind of thing, but just to have what you need on hand. And I feel like this is especially important for those of us who have to eat a particular way because we're trying Mm -hmm. to nourish our body or we have a certain health condition. You don't want to rely on being able to get to the grocery store or the grocery store having what you need. You know, I mean, we're, we're here a couple of years post the beginning of COVID and I'm still sometimes seeing empty spots on the grocery store shelves. Things are not back to where they were before. So you do want to make sure that you have what you need on hand and the way to get to that class is through my membership, which is called The Kitchen Table. And I'll be happy to give you a link to that so people can check it out. There's some other classes and ebooks and things in there, but the flagship program there is the
0: Preparedness Pantry Masterclass. Awesome. I think that's a really great offering. And especially (laughs) right now, we're... Dealing with hurricane season on the eastern seaboard. And geez, we even had this potential hurricane in California Mm -hmm. last month. How crazy is that? Wildfires, potential earthquakes. So yes, there's the natural disaster side of it. But we all saw with COVID, like the rush at the grocery stores and Mm -hmm. the empty shelves. And if you're celiac or you're dealing with something else, I mean, that could really pose a challenge. So I think that that's an amazing thing or just cert- supply chain. Maybe yeah. it's not a giant emergency. Maybe it's just supply chain issues. So that's super cool. So we'll make sure that everybody gets links to, to
1: Yeah, check no, that I out. I appreciate your being willing to share that because I unfortunately yeah. the big challenge during natural disaster season, depending on where you live, what that is, because it's different in different parts of the country. It's too late. Well, yeah. So definitely the best time to plan for an emergency is before there is one. But the other thing is right before emergency season, whether it's tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, mudslides, earthquakes, whatever, all of a sudden you start seeing like the $175 bucket of not good things show up Mm -hmm. in the big box stores. And everybody's like, Oh, I'm just going to put that in my pantry. And there's so many reasons Mm -hmm. why that's really bad for you. So I would much rather that people take the time to invest in learning how to be prepared for this. I mean, we're not, we're not talking, you know, end of the world as we know it. Zombies are coming. I mean If you want to prepare for zombies, go right yeah. ahead. <laughs> I get that. But I, I just really, it's, it's about it's being able extreme to, preppers. Right, right. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. We're not building a bunker under the backyard, but um, it's just about being mindful about how you want to feed and nourish yourself and your family and making sure that you have, you know, two weeks, 30 days worth of food on hand so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. And for your pets too. Yes. (laughs) I do. (laughs) I talk about that in my class. I do. Pets count, you you know? So I'll give you a little snippet. For example, when it comes to water, the amount that you should have on hand is a gallon of water per person per day. And that includes pets. So Mm -hmm. if you have two parents and two kids and two dogs, you want to make sure that you have six gallons available. And then in the class, I talk about like different ways that you can make sure. It is a lot. And then think about trying to have a week's worth. Mm. And, And so there are strategies, though, that you can employ to safely store that much water or to have resources available to help you with that. And so that those are the kinds of things that we talk about in the class.
0: Yeah, okay, cool.
1: And when does that start as a specific date? It's actually open enrollment. Okay, awesome. So it's just rolling. So
0: I'll give you a link that'll let your people in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm gonna do that one too. I think that's great. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been so much fun, Mira, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. And we'll have you back again. Maybe we'll dig into some other other interesting yeah. dubious ingredients in the future.
1: That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate your willingness to open this up and help your people really dive deep into what and how they're eating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're all about. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mira. All right. Bye-bye. Hey there, thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also, check out the show notes for links to connect, follow and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach-client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show, Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Genie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.